Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Today on the show, we have entrepreneur, video game pioneer, film producer, venture capitalist, computer scientist, and best-selling author, Rizwan Verk. Now, Rizwan and I have a wonderful conversation about his perspective on simulation theory coming from the point of view of not only game theory, which he is a pioneer in, but also what the yogis and the Vedic texts have to say about it. Let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Rizwan Verk. How you doing, Rizwan? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate you uh, coming on the show, my friend. I heard about you through a mutual friend, and I was like, I need to speak to Riz ASAP because you combine quantum physics, a little bit of game theory, uh, as well as simulation hypothesis, and my favorite guru of all time, Paramahansa Yogananda, and you even wrote a book, your new book, Wisdom of a Yogi. So I was like, my God, if they would have built a guest in a lab, you would be the person I would want to talk to. So welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. And especially with someone who's a big fan of Yogananda, I can see a couple of pictures there behind you as well. <laughs> yes, yes. Yogananda has been had a big impact on my life, my spiritual life, and uh, on this show, to be honest with you as well. So let's let's dive into um, a little bit of your of your of your past, if you will, uh, where you come from, so people understand. You are. Uh, can you tell the audience um, where you went to school and your specifically your connection with video games and how that connects to simulation theory? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I'm a computer scientist by training. I went to MIT many years ago, and then I became an entrepreneur in the software industry. Um, then I moved out to Silicon Valley and ended up going to business school at Stanford. And right around that time, I got involved with the video game industry. And so this was around the time that the iPhone had just came, come out back in 2007. Uh, and there were games on Facebook. And suddenly, Steve Jobs, whose favorite book, by the way, was Autobiography, Autobiography of Yogi. <laughs> I'm sure you mentioned that in the past, and we can tell some stories later. But you know, even he didn't expect that video games would be the most popular applications for the phone initially. Um, and if you looked at the top grossing apps uh, in those first five years of the iPhone being out, they were almost always all video games. And, and even to this day, I mean, obviously Facebook and these apps get more usage now. Uh, but so I became involved in that industry. We had a game that was the number one game in the app store called Tap Fish. We sold it to a big Japanese company. And then I became more of an investor and advisor to a number of different video game startups. Um, uh, probably one that many people might have heard of is Discord, uh, which mm -hmm. started off as a video game company. Not many people know this. 
uh, but then ended up as a chat app, you know, because the game wasn't that successful, but the, the app they had built for people chatting with each other while playing the video game turned out to be, you know, uh, the golden thing there. And, and now it's used by, you know, so, so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so during this time, you know, I, I was deeply enmeshed in how video games were made. Uh, and before that time, even during my life as an entrepreneur, I had been kind of living a, dub- a double life. You know, during the day, I'd been an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley and dealing with business issues, technology issues. And at the night and on weekends, I'd like, you know, jet off and do different types of explorations of consciousness, you know, whether it's out-of-body experiences at the Monroe Institute, lucid dreaming workshops, shamanic dreaming work, a bunch of different things. Uh, and I talk a little bit about that in my very first book, uh, Zen Entrepreneurship. But it was after I had sold my last video game company, I was visiting a, a virtual a video game startup in Marin County, which is right across the bay from San Francisco. The beautiful view of the city and, you know, one of America's prettiest scenes. But instead of admiring the scenery, we put on this virtual reality headset and I was playing a VR ping pong game. And so I started to play this this game. And, you know, back then the headsets were bulkier than they are now. There were wires coming from the ceiling. The graphics weren't that great. And yet... The physics engine was so good and the responsiveness was so good that I felt like I was really hitting a real ball uh, with the real paddle and was playing a real game of ping pong. So much so that for a moment, my brain forgot that this was a virtual game and I tried to put the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean against the table. And of course, there was no table because it was just all virtual on the headset. And so the controller fell to the floor. I almost fell over. And that's when I began to wonder, okay, well, how long is it going to take for us to build something that would make me forget, not just for a moment is what happened here, but make me completely forget that I was inside a virtual world uh, to build something like the matrix. And so that was a point that I called a simulation point, which is like a technological singularity. Uh, and so, you know, I started to speculate on those stages and we're about halfway there uh, to that point where, where basically the video games would become indistinguishable from physical reality. And then as I researched the subject, you know, I found out that there's a well-known argument by an Oxford professor named Nick Bostrom, who said that if any civilization ever gets to that point, they'll make lots of simulations. And inside those simulations, you'll have no idea that you're inside something like the metrics. And so the idea is that if it can ever be done, it's probably already been done, and we are probably already inside (laughs) that one of those simulations that's running because there's many more of those simulations than there is a physical world or base reality. And so that kind of led to this startling conclusion that you know, from a technological point of view, we are more likely to be in a simulated universe than a physical universe. And then I went and investigated what the Eastern mystics and all the religions were saying. And pretty much they've all been saying the same thing, that the physical world is not the real world. Uh, that it is a kind of illusion or Maya set up for us. And then I went and looked at it, looked at what the scientists were saying. And the scientists were saying that there is no physical world, right? They 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 were trying to find this thing called uh, you know, the material world. And if you think of it like this table that my laptop is on is mostly empty space, right? And then you look in the atom and it's mostly empty space, and you look in the nucleus. And as they kept going down like a bunch of nested Russian dolls, and you open up the last one and there's nothing there. Uh, you know, all you get are bits of information. Uh, and so even the quantum physicists were coming to the conclusion that there is no physical world, at least not the way we think of it. And so, you know, really cutting across all three of those dimensions, technology, science, and religion, and, you know, particularly the mystical sides of religion, uh, that's what got me down this path 
of exploring the idea that the world is a simulation. So this is, it's, it's fascinating because simulation theory has been around for a long time. I've been saying for the longest time, I know I'm not the first to say it, but the concept of the video game makes so much sense when you start thinking about simulation theory and also concepts of like reincarnation where like you literally have multiple lives to, to pass certain levels of a game. And I, I always use either Zelda or super Mario brothers or some, some classic arcade game, but they, you just keep challenging yourself. And specifically, I'll never forget. I went to, when I was young, I was playing the sequel to Zelda, which was link, uh, the adventures of link. And we couldn't get past a certain level. My friends and I were playing all summer, couldn't get past a certain level. And I just said, he goes, man, the only way we're going to get enough experience to beat this monster is to sit in this forest for like six hours and just kill like hogs to gain experience. (laughs) So I went and I sat for six hours at night and just sat there killing low low quality kills, but building up my experience. So the next morning I woke up, I will go over there and I plugged it in. He's like, Where'd you get this? I'm like, I sat six hours and killed hogs for the, the whole night. Like, let's go. And we destroyed the 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 um the villain or the the boss. But that just started me, even at that age, I was thinking, like, hmm. So in reincarnation, when you come back, you're challenged with multiple experiences to level up, you know, and at certain like you've already, oh, you've already conquered addiction. You did that in like five lives ago. You've already conquered uh, you know, hate. You really don't have that kind of energy anymore, or abuse, or or this kind. Is this all making sense to you in your theories and what you're what you've your hypothesis? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you know, in in my book, the simulation hypothesis, I get into a what I call the questing model of karma, right? <laughs> Which okay. basically said thinks you can think of karma as a set of quests or achievements in a video game, and that's how we make video games today right you go in and you've got various quests and various achievements and those are like experiences that you have you know you have signed up for at some point in your life and as you unlock one you end up unlocking others as well and you start creating more of those uh and so you know that analogy of, of life as a video game works really well particularly within the eastern model right which uh with reincarnation and the idea of multiple lives but also there's what's called the npc version of the simulation hypothesis. And then there's the RPG version. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I think this is one of the most important distinctions. And most people who talk about simulation theory don't really talk about it too much, but it's actually one of the most important aspects of this. So NPCs are like non-player characters in video games uh, who are like the AI characters, like the hogs or other. Right. Uh, like you guys you know, are just doing their thing, you know, like Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, or the like, bartender. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, or, you know, there was a movie called Free Guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, which Perfect. came out a couple years ago uh, with uh, Ryan Reynolds, yeah. <laughs> who was yeah. an NPC. He was just a bank teller, right? But then he became conscious. Uh, and then there's the RPG version where you have a player who exists outside of the video game. And then that player basically uh, you know, takes on the identity of the character or what we call the avatar, which by, you know, by coincidence is an old Sanskrit term, which means to descend. In fact, uh, the guys who were at the they were building a, the first MMORPG type game called Habitat at Lucas, at Lucasfilm, you know, the Star Wars, George Lucas's company. 
they were looking for a term that would describe how they could be in this little guy back then we're talking 8-bit graphics so mm-hmm. you know very small characters how they could inhabit that over you know the the phone lines because they were using dial-up modems on, yeah. on the commodore 64 right? uh, which is going back to my day as a kid now me too, <laughs> me too. Play, get, yeah programming uh and and so they, they end up borrowing the sanskrit term uh, for you know the the, the for uh, to descend when divinity descends into a character, and so in the RPG version we exist outside of the game, uh, and we play this avatar or character inside the game, and we go through the whole thing, and then at the end, what happens at the end? And so you know I spent a lot of time looking at near death experiencers. Uh, and a good friend of mine is a gentleman named Daniel Brinkley. I don't know if you've ever had him on your show. Oh, of course. But... He's one of my first. Oh. I think he was my very first near-death experience, actually. Daniel oh, really? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the first one I, I read about as well, and he's become a good friend. But, you know, he was from him is where I learned the term holographic panoramic life review, right? And mm-hmm. what m- many near-death experiencers describe is being able to see your entire life played back in front of you, but played back, not just like a movie projector, but in a fully holographic 3D way. And then you have to see what it was like from the other person's point of view. And, you know, Daniel was a bit of a bully when he was a kid, he was a big kid and he used to beat up other kids. So he got to feel what it was like to beat himself up. And he actually shot people in the military. And, and he had to see not only what what happened, you know, to that person, the suffering when he killed them, but also what happened to their wives and children, like the ripple effect of their action. And it turns out this is something we can do in video games, right? The most popular content on YouTube today is video game content, right? Like, like my nephew would say to his father, my brother, uh, I want to see Star Wars. And he said, oh, you want to see the Star Wars movie? And he was like four years old at the time. He's like, no, no, I want to see that man and that woman play the Star Wars video game, right? <laughs> Which is recorded on YouTube. So you can replay the entire session. Now, one of my startups, I was involved with Silicon Valley. You could put on a headset. You could take a game like League of Legends, which is normally played on a 2D screen. And you could go to any XYZ coordinate within that. So you could see what it was like, or in a game like Counter-Strike Global Offensive or or, uh, Call of Duty, you could see what it was like to shoot yourself, right? (laughs) Basically, Mm -hmm. the kind of thing that Daniel described. But of course, only visual. We don't, you know, the games don't have a feeling element yet. But so, you know, as an engineer... Uh, and a scientist, I always think, how would this stuff work? Uh, and, in, you know, it's not just in the Eastern traditions, also in, in the uh, Judeo-Christian religions. There's the Book of Life. And in Islam, they're much more explicit. There's the Scroll of Deeds, which there's two angels. One is writing down every one of your uh, good deeds, and one is writing down every one of your bad deeds. And then you have to look at the Scroll of Deeds. Now, that's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor from 2,000 years ago. Uh, when they wouldn't have understood anything else. But of course, it doesn't mean there's literally angels with feather pens writing down <laughs> everything mm-hmm. you do. What are they going to write in English, Chinese, Arabic, right? It, all it means is that everything is being recorded so that it's there to be able to be played back. And that's what you can do inside a 3D you know, virtual environment. And that, that's why this metaphor is a very powerful one. And and it ties to Yogananda. So wh- one of the reasons why I wrote this current book uh, yeah, I'll tell you the story of how, how it came about. But Yogananda himself was always up on the latest science and technology. Mm-hmm. You know, he came over to the U.S. in 1920 as a young Swami, and he, he just it was right after World War One. He was on the first boat out of India after World War One, and during that war, he saw in the newsreels some of the you know some of the most uh, most amount of killing that the world had ever seen because World War One they called it the Great War. They didn't call it World War One, right? Because 
it was the first time mechanized, you know, guns and killing machines had been used. And so there was death on an unprecedented scale. And and he said, you know, he said, Lord, why would you allow this much suffering? And he got back a clear answer during his meditation. And it said that life and death are relativities in the cosmic dream. Think of the newsreels and the movie projectors and the movies that you see. The characters are suffering and they die. But the actors are not dying any more than you do when you die in this world. And so he loved that analogy of the movie projector. And he would encourage you know, his students to look away from the screen, right? If you've ever been inside a, a movie theater, you've looked away from the screen. Well, one, you can see how you know, wrapped up people are in the movie. Uh, and I used to do this as a kid. But two, you can see the flickering of the light, right? So you can see the frames. You can see that it's actually an illusion. Right? And so Maya, well, we translate it as illusion, but the correct translation is something like a carefully crafted illusion. Like if you go to a magic show, you know, you're prepared to be deceived, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you you want to believe that stuff. And you know, he's actually a magician who's doing, you know, doing some tricks on you, but that's part of the fun. And so Yogananda, you would use the latest analogy. And going back to ancient times, you have the Leela, which is the, the play of the gods, uh, then you have the, the stage play. Buddha used the dream. A lot of Buddhists use the dream metaphor. Buddha literally means to awaken. And so I believe if Yogananda were alive today, he would say, well, it's like a movie, but it's interactive. We're all actors and players, as Shakespeare would call us. Uh, but we also watch the movie. We have a script, but we can change it. What does that sound like? It sounds like an interactive, massively multiplayer, you know, online role-playing video game. So I think he would use that analogy today uh, very much to describe, you know, the reality of the world. Think of it like a game. So what's really interesting is when you said that everything is recorded, um, first thing that popped into my head is the Akashic Records, which is is not a new age term. It is actually a Vedic term, if I'm not mistaken. A lot of people are like, oh, that's some new age stuff. Like, it's not that new and it's old. Uh, and that concept of, uh, you know, and I've talked to physicists who, talk about the Akashic field, that we all are surrounded in the Akashic field and that everything is recorded and we can access all of that. How does your hypothesis in in uh, simulation theory and game theory, if you will, mix in with this concept of the Akashic records or the Akashic field? Well, I mean, the Akashic records fits in very well because, you know, what I'm talking... So in, in my model, I, I like to talk about using kind of video game terminology there's the rendered world, right? And so that is the world. So if you and I are in the same field inside a video game, right, we will see similar things, but not exactly. And this is what will tie to quantum physics. Like uh, my avatar will only see what 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 I can see from my point of view and your avatar right. will only see what you can point, what you right. can see. So there's this right. sense of we only render, right? Those are the pixels that are being rendered. That doesn't mean that the rest of the world doesn't exist. It exists as information. And so, you know, we, we were joking about the Commodore 64. If you were to go back to the days of the Commodore 64 and say, can you render something like World of Warcraft or Fortnite, you know, full 3D world? They would say, no, that's just too many pixels. Right? We can't keep track of all those pixels. But we can today. And part of the reason why is we have faster computers. But it's not just that. It's that we have optimization techniques, right? We have 3D models. And so we render only that which can be observed by our specific piece of the simulation. Right. And so you and I, even though we might be standing in the same field, we might be seeing different things in the same way that you and I aren't really talking about it, talking to each other now. 
I'm mm-hmm. talking to my computer and it's tra- right. translating it into bits and it's sending it back. And so this idea of rendering matches very much with the observer effect. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Right, which is the idea that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that uh, if, if the easiest way to explain it with the double slit experiment is the Schrodinger's cat, right? Where you have a cat that's either alive or dead. Common sense tells us the cat is one or the other. We don't know. We haven't looked at the box, right? And so it's a thought experiment by Erwin Schrodinger, which there's a 50% chance the cat is dead from some poison being released after an hour. But what's weird is that quantum physics tells us that the cat is actually in a state of superposition. And when something is in a superposition, it's in both states. It's both alive and dead until the time that someone observes it or someone you know, takes a measurement of that. And that sounds bizarre to us, right? So what does that mean <laughs> that, that it could be both alive or dead? Uh, well, it, what it means is that we have a probability wave of different possibilities. And it, what happens is the probability wave collapses when the observer is there. And that, so the golden rule is, the universe only renders that probability that is observed. Um, And so that's very similar to how we render video games, right? We only render that which can be observed uh, by, in this case, your avatar or your character. Mm -hmm. And then we cache it so that if multiple people are observing, they'll see the similar things, but not necessarily. And this gets into a whole area where you can start to explain a lot of weird phenomenon, a lot of unexplained phenomenon with this model of a video game. But we'll, we'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. So back to your original question, you know, about the Akashic Records. Basically, uh, uh, where is karma stored, right? That, that's an interesting question, <laughs> right? right. Uh, and you, ha- you have people who do these Akashic Record meditation where they will visualize a library, like a grand library, and there'll be books there. And you open the book, but what you actually see inside the book, and you have near-death experiences reporting something like this sometimes too. You open the book, but what's inside the book is not picture. I mean, it's not letters. It's it's video. (laughs) It's like a whole holographic scene. So it's actually recording. So so I believe that the Akashic Records really is a recording of everything uh, that has happened inside this video game, along with other probabilities and possibilities. And there's a lot of weirdness that when you get into what is the past, in quantum mechanics as well, we can get into that as well. But I think that, that there's a pretty good uh, there's a pretty good match. Now there's a whole field of physics called digital physics, you know, which in the past we've talked about physics with mathematics and with information. But now uh, there's this group of of people working on digital physics, which is the idea that the world is information. So not only does energy get conserved, but so does information. Right? There was this whole thing about Stephen Hawking and does information get lost in a black hole, right? What happens to that information? And as far as we can tell, and this is sort of an evolving field, and people like Stephen Wolfram, who wrote the Mathematica software, or Ed Fredkin, who was a director of uh, you know an early computer lab at MIT, uh, we're working on cellular automata, which are like these processes that try to simulate, like the game of life, where you've got these cells. And, but basically, they're they're trying to get very simple rules. And so if you run these rules a million times, what happens? Well, it turns out different things happen <laughs> depending on what you do. But that's all a way of describing the universe using computer analogies and bits of information. And and so this idea that information is never lost means that it has to be stored somewhere. Right. And, 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 and so, you know, the way that I like to think about it is that the world is based on information. I mentioned this earlier that when they looked at the bottom level, 
there was a physicist named John Wheeler who worked with Einstein and Niels Bohr. He was at Princeton right across from Einstein. And he came up with this phrase, it from bit. And he said, if something is an it, if something is physical, like this book, right? Mm -hmm. The book consists of, at the bottom level, all it consists of is a bunch of answers to yes, no questions. That's what particles are. And that is the fundamental unit of information, which is bits. And, and so I see the Akashic Records really being the place where all this information is stored. And then it's organized like a library system, right? It's organized around your gameplay sessions, right? What is it that you just like, just like you could save and you could record and save on YouTube or stream through Twitch, your gameplay sessions, that becomes a window into this information. And you can choose the XYZ coordinates uh, with which to view that, that that point in time so let's go a little a little bit more granular and and go deeper down this ridiculous rabbit hole that we've walked into (laughs) because your head's going to start to hurt in a minute so everybody listening prepare yourselves so you mentioned that if we are in a simulation and the theory states that we're half you're saying we're halfway there so that eventually we will have the technology to create a reality that's indistinguishable from the reality we live in right now then you also said that it, once you get to that point, there'll be multiple realities piled up on top of each other. Now, I started going, when when you said that, in my mind, I started going back to the Vedic text and the yogic philosophies, which talk about multiple realities, multiple levels of reality uh, that you ascend to. And if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, there's either seven or 11 levels of enlightenment like you you as a soul grows it goes into these different levels as you know you you go and your the dimensions excuse me dimensions your multiple dimensions uh pass so we're in the 3d dimension now we're talking about the fifth dimension is where we're kind of walking towards but you know someone like jesus or yogananda is in the seventh dimension but then there's beings higher than that have evolved at a higher level than that and all this so I'm I'm saying all of this because if we're doing that with 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 simulation theory, who is the programmer? Who is creating all of these simulations, and for what purpose? Well, that's the big right sixty four million dollar question <laughs> that I get asked a lot. Well, well, the first the first question I get asked is, do you believe we're in a simulation? And and my answer is uh, with more than 50% likelihood we are in a information-based reality that gets rendered, which is like a simulation. And the second biggest question is, okay, who's running it and why are they running it? And so I, I like to say, well, let's think about two questions. Why do we run simulations? And why do we play video games? Right? And they're slightly different answers, but, but mm-hmm. they're, they're both related. Uh, now, when we run a simulation, we might run a simulation of the weather, you know, to try to figure out what right. is likely to happen, mm-hmm. right? We will change variables, uh, but mostly we're trying to figure out what is the likely outcome, whether it's a fruit fly population, it's pandemic spread with certain variables. We'll go back and we'll change the variables and then we'll say, okay, this is this the simulation. And so, um, uh, it, you know, it's possible that we would run the simulation to see what would happen. Now, there's a great speech by a well-known science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. who I'm sure your listeners have heard of, and you know, mm-hmm. he, uh, Blade Runner, Minority Report, uh, and The Man in the High Castle, which was the Amazon series recently. Mm-hmm. Now, that one's interesting because he had a speech in Metz, France in 1977, so like 
almost 50 years ago, where he said, we are living in a computer programmed reality. And the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed, some alteration occurs in our reality. Uh, we would have the sense of reliving the same moments. We'd have a sense of deja vu, <laughs> right? And so what he was talking about, and, and he explicitly said there's a programmer and a counter-programmer, and they would go back and change things and rerun the simulation. So each time you rerun the simulation, you get something slightly different, right? This is a aspect of chaos theory. Most people have heard of the term chaos theory. But what it's really talking about is sensitivity to initial conditions. So if you change like one little variable and you do a million steps to the future, you can have a vastly different outcome. And so he came to believe that the man in the high castle, which is about a timeline where Germany and Japan, the Axis powers, won World War II, and then they divided America between them. He came to believe that that was a real timeline, that the simulators reset, like they ran it to see what would happen. Because when you have a really complex process, the only way to see what will happen, it's a term called computationally irreducible for a complex process. The only way to see what's going to happen at step 1 million is to go to step 999, 999. Well, the only way to find out what's going to happen there is go to 998, 997. So you have to run the whole simulation. And so if the world is a computationally irreducible process, you have to run different things and different variables, and you have to run it more than once, getting back to your idea of different realities. And there's also different dimensions. Like in Islam, there's this idea of the seven heavens, but there's also this idea of the seven earths which is really weird, right? Because he says seven earths, each with their own Adam, each with their own Moses, each with their own Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you're really talking about are almost slightly different timelines that have evolved differently. And, and the number seven in Arabic in that case could also mean many. And so we get into the multiverse side. So I wrote a second book about simulation called The Simulated Multiverse, which is heavily based on this idea of Philip K. Dick and the Mandela effect, that things may happen differently in time. Okay, so that's the answer to the first question is to get the most likely outcome or the most optimal outcome. And in that case, you can think of it as the simulator saying, well, that wasn't the most optimal outcome when Germany and Japan won the war. Let's go back and rerun it. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And so he came to believe that they told him, supposedly, according to his wife, Tessa, who I interviewed, uh, you know, while I was writing my book, that they also prevented JFK being assassinated in Dallas and they would run it forward and then he would get assassinated in Orlando or he would get assassinated in another city. And the ones where he didn't get assassinated would end up in some kind of war or something really badly. So they just rewound it back to where we are. That brings up a very disturbing possibility, which we don't have to get into now, but it could mean we're just on a branch to see what's going to happen. <laughs> then that branch gets rewound. Uh, but let's go to the second question, which is why do we play video games, which I think might be more relevant to the spiritual discussion. So why do we play video games? We play them to have experiences that we can't have outside the game. And so uh, I might be able to fly on a dragon right, uh, and fight you know, orcs in a fantasy game, which I can't necessarily do outside. So we use it to have experiences. Uh, of a certain type and then to level up and to occupy our time. And so when you say what's outside the simulation, right, there's lots of different theories. One is future humans. And there's something called an ancestor simulation, which is like if we were to run a simulation of ancient Rome, those would be like our ancestors, let's say, or ancient India. Um, another is it's aliens. 
But another is it's us, right? We are the players. This is where the NPC versus RPG becomes important. We chose to come into the simulation to have certain experiences. And those experiences are our quests and our karma, uh, if you will, right? That's in the database. And we, we're creating all of those you know, new quests for ourselves. And, and there are certain experiences of emotion, like you mentioned earlier, addiction, right? These things may not exist in whatever form we are outside of the simulation. I, I don't take a strong opinion on what's outside the simulation, but it, if you think of a player and a character, they don't have to be the same, right? Mm-hmm. And so we could just no. be pure consciousness outside. Mm-hmm. And so we want to have these bodily experiences and experience the emotions inside. Um, and, and so, so, you know, that's where, where I think that you get into the more spiritual dimension and eventually you can define the creator of all of this as God, but you can also say there are many programmers, right. Who are creating different pieces of it, uh, for ourselves to experience, uh, so that we can, we can, as a video game designer, that's something we do. We like create an experience and then we go in and experience it. And then we provide it to other people to let right. them go in and experience it. So it sounds like, yeah, there might be many programmers, but somebody owns the school that all this, or, or the facility that all this gear, quote unquote, is li- living at. So uh, there has to be something at the top orchestrating yeah. all of this, whatever that energy yeah. is. Um, but I, and as you're explaining it all, it all makes perfect sense to me. And you start thinking about it like, well, yeah, this, you're kind of reinforcing the spiritual ideas of reincarnation with game theory, which is you start looking at it, it, it makes absolute sense. Now you did say something and I was going to bring it up, but you said it first, the Mandela effect. One of my favorite topics to talk about other than what we're talking about right now, um, because, and for everybody who doesn't know what Mandela effect is, it's the point where things that you might've thought in your, you have a memory of really don't exist, but you completely believe they were a memory. So I'm going to ask you a few of these just to see if, what your answers are. Um, was Ed McMahon ever part of the publisher's clearinghouse? Right. I remember him being. <laughs> right. You yeah, remember right. him with the check at the door with the commercials, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Never existed in this. Right. Never existed. Um, is it Jif or Jiffy peanut butter? Right. I always thought it was Jiffy, right? <laughs> um, but Jiffy. it's Jif, right? If you look at it, right? Uh, and so there's a lot of these, right? There's the Bernstein yeah, there's a t- Bears now. Oh, the Bernstein Bears becomes, is a big one. Yeah, go ahead. Where it becomes interesting, though, is if you look at, and I, I talk about this in my book, The Simulated Multiverse, is if you look at your closeness or proximity or significance to the event, Okay, it's possible the standard explanation, the one character that's different, is one possible explanation. But when you talk about things that are are very important to you, right, like uh, people, you know, saw, thought Nelson Mandela died in prison. And there's a a blogger who said that she was in journalism school and she actually went to South Africa to try to interview him (laughs) in prison and was told his health was not very good. So she wasn't allowed to interview him. She came back, started working for NPR, and then she remembers him dying in prison, which of course in our reality didn't happen until later. He got out of prison. He became president of South Africa, uh, died in like 2013, but people remember his wife speaking at his funeral. And so, you know, for an ordinary person, you could make a, maybe make a mistake, but for somebody that's close to it, like in this case, the journalist who was there remembers him dying shortly afterwards, you're less likely to make a mistake. Uh, and, and that's where biblical scripture you know, is, is my my favorite Mandela effects are the ones which are very difficult to simply write off as bad memory. So like, for example, the lion and the lamb, right? The, 
which is a, a phrase from Isaiah. Uh, I forget the exact uh, verse number, mm-hmm. right? But in the Bible. And yet, if you look in the King James Bible today, it says the wolf and the, will lie with the lamb. <laughs> it doesn't no. say the lion and the lamb. I so remember the lion the and the lamb. <laughs> and there are people who have like framed, you know, references of that verse on physical objects, right? And so now you're intersecting with scripture and you're intersecting with physical objects. And there are people who claim their same King James Bible that they've had since they were a kid. Because at first I thought, well, that could just be a mistranslation or a different edition, right? <laughs> And they're like, no, we have the same physical books that we had, and they're different now. So significance is high. Why? Because people memorize, you know, these verses uh, or prayers, uh, you know, much more than they might remember the spelling of Kit Kat, right? And and so <laughs> when you get to that level, and my favorite Mandela effect is one that's not very well known, uh, mm-hmm. but it, you know the statue, the thinker. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we're done. So does he have his? Uh, does he have his uh, hand? Under his chin, or does he have it up on his forehead? It was always on his chin, but I was just in Italy, and I realized that he was—it's up here, if I'm not mistaken, or is it vice yeah, versa? So, yeah. So mostly, if you go, you'll see it down here. It's always, you won't okay. see it tightly clenched. You'll see it like this, like. Very oh, I always light. thought it was like this, like like with the fist. Yeah, but if you look, like there's a statue here at Stanford, and I went and looked at it, right? And it's actually like this. But there's a picture of George Bernard Shaw standing in the pose of the thinker, which was taken the night before the first bronze statue of the thinker was unveiled in London. And he's going like this, right? <laughs> on his on his forehead. So there's wow. literally a picture of him saying, in the pose of the thinker. And so you start to wonder what's going on. Now, getting back to my earlier point about little changes, if you run the simulation forward, turns out a friend of mine from MIT was visiting uh, here at Google, he's working for Google. And after I had written my simulation book, I was like, okay, I'm done writing about simulations for now. <laughs> and he goes, well, have you heard of the Mandela effect? Turns out one of the best explanations for it is simulation theory, because if you rerun the simulation, you might have different timelines, right? Uh, and they, if you change one small variable, it could change big things, or it could just change a lot of small things. And so it's very possible that people remember different histories. And this is really weird, but when you look at quantum physics, like we talked about the Schrodinger's cat and the observer effect. Well, there's something even more bewildering. It's called the delayed choice uh, observer effect or delayed choice experiment. And the idea is that not only are you choosing whether the cat is alive or dead when you collapse the probability, you're also choosing the history of the cat, right? Which, which is very strange. But what it means is that like, there's something called the cosmic delayed choice effect, where suppose there's light coming from a quasar that's a billion light years away from us, right? So how long does it take for the light to get here? A yeah. billion years, right? That's yeah. Light years. And suppose there's a gravitationally big object in the middle, like a black hole. It's not the middle. Let's say it's a million years, light years away from us. And the light has to go to the left or to the right. And turns out we can detect which way it went here. Now, when would that choice have been made of whether the light goes to the left or the right in that scenario? A million years ago, right? right? But what quantum physics is telling us, that choice is made today. <laughs> so we are choosing from one of these possible histories, but it's not chosen until somebody observes and records the light, uh, the polarization of the light that tells us whether it went to the left or the right. So even Schrodinger thought this was bizarre. And, and he brought this up because he said there are multiple simultaneous histories. Most people are okay with the idea that there are multiple possible futures, right? 
you know, you make one choice, you go this way, you move to Austin, you go that way, right? Sure, 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 you sure. move to LA, you go that way. But they're not used to thinking of multiple possible paths. Oh, I went to school in Boston or I went to school in California. Uh, and, and that with the Mandela effect is interesting uh, example of is maybe perhaps people remembering one of these alternate simultaneous histories. But, uh, but that but that goes into the idea of there is no past, there is no future, that all things are happening at this moment, which which is a very our programming and I mean our hardware and our brains can't comprehend it. Just it doesn't it doesn't compute. So we we don't have the the hardware to, to process that idea, but. If that's the case, then things that are happening to us now affect past lives, quote unquote, past lives, and they also affect future lives. And this is when the head starts to hurt a lot because we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. If you if everything is happening at the same time and I use the analogy of the record. The lifetime is the record, but we are the needle. And if we want to look back and have past life experience or past life, remember past lives, you can move the needle over and maybe get a glimpse of the life in Rome or the life in Egypt or, you know, the life in the Mediterranean or wherever it was. And you kind of go back now. Um, I just have to ask you, because this is just, I have to geek out with you for a second. You were saying something in regards to the Mandela effect, uh, things that we're closer to, we have a stronger uh, you know, affection for maybe, and maybe have a stronger memory of. So I'm a filmmaker. So there's two movies, two very famous lines in those movies. And I want to hear what you think of it. Empire Strikes Back. I'm sure you've seen it. Yep, of course. It's it's Luke. I'm your father. Correct. That's what I remembered, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but but then if you, when you go back and look at it, right? It it's says, not that. No. I am your father, right? That's what Darth Vader says. I mean, you literally see comedians or you see the, the the spoofs of it. Luke, I am your father. Like it's constantly. So that's such a strong memory. And then field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Right. It's not that line. I don't know. Do you know that? That one, I, I don't know about that effect. I mean, I remember the line. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. No, it's not. They will come. If you build it, he will come. That's BS. Oh, right. That's Actually, BS. That's right. I did read about this when I was doing my research on the Mandela. Right, because yeah, it's just, but it was like, no, it's they will come. James Earl Jones at the end, it's like, if you build it, they will come. They are all the people that come to the field. But yes, there is a version <laughs> of that, that he will come, which is the father of Kevin Costner. Sorry for the spoiler effect, guys. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> but but it, so those two lines, since I'm a filmmaker, those are very strong memories. I remember seeing both of them. I remember seeing, ah. I was in the theater seeing a Field of Dreams. I was in the theater seeing Empire Strikes Back. And I've seen Empire Strikes Back a thousand times because it's Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, so, absolutely. Me too, right? So it's well, really, you know, yeah, go ahead. Do you know the, the vlogger who coined the term Mandela Effect, where, where she originally found, you know, coined the term because of? No. It was because of Star Trek. It was she was at a conference in Atlanta, which is a Dragon Con. It's like Comic Con, but it's uh, mm -hmm. sure, sure. Uh, and there were there was a panel of Star Trek actors, you know, the original series, and there were people in the audience. Now nobody knows they're Star Trek like Star Trek fans, right? <laughs> and, oh, and there were fans in the audience saying they remembered an episode that went like this, and the actors are like, "We never recorded that episode. What are you talking about?" Right? <laughs> and and that was you know one of the origins of the effect, and and of course before. 
the internet, it was hard to find people, other people who shared your memory, right? And so even in 1977, Philip K. Dick said, all you would need to do is find a group of people who remembered an alternate past. So that's interesting that you remember both. That, that, that's a, yeah, know, it's like on both sides. On both sides. Yeah, it's, it's you know, Fruit of the Loom not having the cornucopia. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, the, and yeah. you start looking at logos and you start looking at, you know, it's, it's Berenstein Bears. It's not Berenstain Bears. That's ridiculous. Uh, you know, the, these kind of things that, that keep yeah. coming up. But this goes along with this idea of the simulation. And I've never really explored it the way you have in this conversation as well, because you've really eloquently put out there this theory of using the, the video game as a model and not only exploring it for experiences and all of that, but running the simulation again. And I hadn't heard that term before, running it for the past, running it for the future. You know, I come from Florida and we, they ran hurricane simulations all the time. Where is the hurricane going to hit? And there's like, we have 45 models, 30 of them say it's going to hit Orlando, you know, but, you know, five of them say Miami, but you know, so like, we're going to take the 30. And that's kind of where we think it's going to go because that's the majority of the simulations where it's going. So it's, it's truly, truly um, fascinating how you've put this all together. Now, how do you think Eastern uh, Eastern thought, Yogananda and the Vedic texts, yogic texts and, and yogic philosophies, how, where do they stand in simulation theory and how do they either approve or disapprove of the theories that we're discussing right now? Well, so in my new book, Wisdom of a Yogi, you know, I have a whole chapter uh, called uh, <laughs> you know, The World is Like a Dream, a Movie, a Video Game, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, it's doing quite well. It was actually, so, uh, you know, how I came to write this book is Harper College India reached out to me out of the blue uh, and, and said it's the 75th anniversary of Autobiography Yogi and we'd like to write something that's more attuned to modern technology to younger people, uh, as well as a set of lessons that you know people have learned from Yogananda's autobiography. And so that's what the book is. And so, you know, one of the lessons in the book is that sometimes the universe gives you a task. Uh, and whether you're ready to do it or not, you know, that task has been put in front of you and you have to embrace mm -hmm. it. Just like Yogananda was a young Swami and he was asked to come over and speak at the Congress of uh, Religions, you know, in Boston in 1920. He wasn't the best choice. He had almost he had never given a speech in English before, right? And yet, you know, he came over to represent, you know, India, a whole, you know, the Hindu religion at that time. Yet it was his task, and he knew it from the vision that he had had. And sometimes the universe gives us the task, and so, so that was, you know, uh, this task was put in front of me rather unexpectedly because here I am writing about simulation theory, and I write about business. Uh, and as an entrepreneur, and I was like, you sure you want me to write it? I'm not even a Hindu, right? Technically, I'm a Muslim, uh, but I'm a huge fan of Yogananda. And so what had happened is I had been through some health issues, and I'd gone back and reread Autobiography of a Yogi, which I do every few years. And I was sitting on a couch because I couldn't do much else for a number of months, and I just wrote up some blog posts about you know, what the book had meant to me and what other books there are like that that I could find. And that was part of the reason they reached out to me was because I had quoted Yogananda in the simulation hypothesis and, and I had laid these seeds with these blog posts. I was never intending to write a book, you know, specifically about him. Uh, but but I think it, it it matches very well with the Eastern uh, philosophies. You know, I, I've already talked about the idea of Maya, right? And, and, and the Leela. Well, it turns out Leela means, you know, play or game or play like a stage play. You can interpret it in any of those ways. 
right? And so if you've ever seen the, if you've ever uh, seen that game, Shoots uh, and Ladders in the West, mm-hmm. it's based on an old Indian game, which is Snakes and Ladders. And I came across uh, a representation of it saying that that game was called the Leela. And it was, you know, basically meant to simulate karma in life. You would roll the dice and you would go up and then you would hit, you know, a snake and you would have to go down. And if you reach the top level, it was like enlightenment, various levels of nirvana and enlightenment at the top. And so literally, you know, the Leela meant the game of life. So this this analogy of the game is one that I think and 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 the video game is one that I think fits very well within the Eastern traditions, particularly within Buddhism and Hinduism. Now there are certain differences. Right? Uh, and so like within Hinduism, there's this idea of the soul and the Atman going back and forth through reincarnation. Whereas in Buddhism, Buddhism, some of the scholars would say there is no real self, right? That what is the thing that reincarnates? Well, it's just a bag of karma. What does that mean? It's just information, right? That basically, you know, as the bag gets bigger, you have more karma. And then as you resolve it, it goes down. It's like a database that grows and then shrinks in size and you melt back into the thing. And it's kind of like the NPC versus RPG versions of the simulation hypothesis in a way. And so there are a lot of little subtleties, but, you know, you know, the Buddha talked about, you know, all phenomenon uh, are like reflections in a very clear mirror. Devoid of inherent reality, right? And I think that's a good description of what pixels are <laughs> inside mm-hmm. a video game. And and it turns out it's not just the Eastern religions. This is what I find fascinating. Although I spent a lot of time on you know dreams and metaphors. Uh, you know, there's a whole Tibetan dream yoga, which was actually came through Naropa, who was an Indian um, saint, where they learned to wake up inside the dream state with lucid dreaming, and then they realize this is just a dream, and then they say you have to take that awareness outside and do the same thing when you're in the physical world. But also in the Quran, I, I was in the UK, and I just gave a, a talk at a conference, Islamic conference, about Islam and the simulation hypothesis, and there are verses in the Quran that say, we have set up this world for you as a game, as a sport, as a pastime. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Right. For you to go and multiply with your children and riches and do all these things. That sounds a lot like, I don't know if you ever played the game of life when we were little kids. Oh, yeah. You know, you had like you kind of moved around. It it, it reminds me of the the Leela representation. It was a way to represent what what this game might be. So, I, I, you know, these are all metaphors that people use. And that's the only way to talk about this stuff sometimes. Uh, But I think today's metaphors if these religions were started today, we would use a different set of metaphors. And it's something that the younger generation, I think, finds more interesting because they've spent even more time in video games than we did in mm-hmm. our generation. Our, our video games used to be, you know, console, single player, two guys playing next to each other. Today, they're used to being avatars. Like, that's not even like a strange thing to them. Uh, there was a poll a few years ago that said, like, uh, a group of Gen Z people prefer to spend as much money equipping their avatar, you know, yeah. within Fortnite or Roblox as within their physical, like Nikes or whatever, buying physical things. So, um, so anyway, I think it's a way into religion that is a, also a way to bridge the gap. So, you know, I spend a lot of time with scientists in academia and in uh, technologists in Silicon Valley and with a lot of religious folks. Uh, but it's a way to bridge the gap. Like one of the things that they were debating at this Islamic conference was uh, insolment. Right? When does insolment occur? 
occur. Of course, this is a big debate here in the U.S. with abortion. And when does the fetus get an actual soul? Does mm-hmm. it have one? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's like different answers, 40 days, 120 days. Uh, when they're born, at the moment of conception, everybody has their own ideas. And I said, well, I'd like to present you guys. And there were like ayatollahs in the audience, which is really odd for me. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I like to present you a different uh, d- definition of ensoulment. It is when you put on the virtual reality helmet, right? Oh, wow. Uh, and you forget, you know, what had happened uh, outside, you know, what you were doing before. Like that is the, the process of ensoulment. And so, uh, I mean, I didn't take a position on the, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> on the actual time, but it's a different way of thinking about what is it. You know, there's analogies like Rumi uses analogies of, you know, the body is like a layer of clothes. You just take it off. Right. Um, and, and that I think ties very much. So, so I think simulation theory is something that most people in the religious world, especially the RPG version is something that, that they resonate with as a way of talking mm-hmm. about. And it's something that you can discuss with serious scientists and people who are atheists have said, well, you know, uh, if we're in a simulation, then anyone outside the simulation would seem like supernatural beings to us. They could do, you know, they could have superpowers, right? And, and in autobiography, Yogi, there's a levitating saints. There are saints right. that are bilocating in multiple sure. places. There's, you know, palaces being built. There's jinn who are like these entities uh, that that are pulling stuff out, and all of that becomes possible when you think of virtual reality, right? Because you can render things, and Yogananda himself gives the description of using light to perform these miracles. They basically take what he called the life atoms and put them together into another body. And that's how you can have two bodies. So, can you? Because this is fascinating. Because I've always been. Fa- I mean, who hasn't been fascinated if you're in? If you've ever read out about Yogi or have ever studied yogic, uh, yogic philosophy or the yogis. The yogic powers, the the famous yogic powers that are quote unquote spiritual traps, and you shouldn't be focused on those, and they're just kind of afterthoughts yes. and all this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but I always said that the same thing. Like, well, if we're in a simulation, then the yogis have gotten a little bit understanding of how the code is written, and if they understand how the code is written, well, then they can break the rules. Kind of like when you're playing contra. And you do up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA start. And now you are impenetrable and you can go through the entire game in five minutes. Uh, as opposed to if you remember, if, if you, if I'm that old and for everyone listening, um, in the eighties and nineties, that's that game. It's a very famous cheat code. Yogis maybe have evolved to a point <clears throat> where they understand how this reality functions and can break rules that we just can't break and would look to us like supernatural, like walking on water, Jesus's miracles, fish, you know, water into wine, fish out of loaves, all these, these miracles and Buddha as well. And all these other ascended masters or masters who walk the earth, there's stories, there's myths of these quote unquote powers. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, I I spent a lot of time talking about the cities, which are like the superpowers uh, in yoga tradition. And, and Yogananda gives us, you know, these, these stories, you know, there was the saint who could, who could basically produce any perfume <laughs> yeah. in your hand and you could smell it. Right. And he was not impressed because he's like, you, you know, you're so spiritually advanced and that's what you're doing. You're making perfume. So that's right. And right. so they always warn us, but, but, but I, I believe in the autobiography, there's also an interesting karmic element to these superpowers. So yes, one, I think video games gives us a way to be able to explain these things, right? It gives us a model and a framework. So for example, remote viewing, 
is one of these, you know, these powers where people can see what's happening. Well, in a video game, there's what's called a first person perspective, and you can shift to a second or third person perspective, mm -hmm. right? You can see the person from above. And most people who have near-death experiences start off by saying, okay, I was out of my body and I was looking down and I saw the whole experience. And Yogananda himself had little samadhi experiences when he was young where he could see everything that was going on around, right? Him, it was as if he was, you know, an omnipresent 360. Well, you can move the virtual camera. Like kind of, if you remember the, the they call it bullet time in the matrix. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, you can kind of, that's done by moving the camera around, right? Uh, and so there's a virtual camera and you can put that virtual camera at any place within the 3D world. So you, you know, normally you're stuck to seeing your own character, but there are video games with APIs that let you then put the virtual camera somewhere else and you can replay what happened at that point in time. So it becomes a way to explain, you know, many of these strange powers, particularly with multiple avatars, right? I mean, you can actually uh, have different avatars and you can look at them. There's a story in, at the beginning of autobiography of Yogi, the saint with two bodies. I don't know if you mm -hmm. remember that. His of father course. sent him to Benares to go find this friend of his, but he said, ask the Swami where he is. He went and asked the Swami. The Swami just sits there and meditates for a half an hour to an hour. And Yogananda is you know, annoyed because he's a 12-year-old kid saying, you haven't even told me where he is. And suddenly the guy that he's looking for shows up and he sees the Swami meditating. He's like, wait, the Swami was just with me in the market. And he told me you know, to come here to see you. Uh, and I followed him and I saw him in the flesh, but Yogananda said, no, no, he's been sitting here the whole time. Like he hasn't moved, right? And so it becomes, you know, a way to render another version or you can have ghost mode in certain games uh, <laughs> where, where you can go, but your avatar isn't actually there, but you can see what's happening there. And you see lots of stories like this in the autobiography. So I think, you know, video games becomes a way to explain some of these powers, but also I think, you know, Yogananda also pulled in some very interesting elements of karma and explaining it with these miracles. Like one of the stories that I always remembered was Lahiri Mahashai, who was Yogananda's guru's guru, uh, who met the seemingly immortal or deathless Babaji who has lived supposedly in the Himalayas for not just hundreds, perhaps even up to a thousand years or more, uh, where he materialized an entire palace for him as the site of his initiation. And he would, this is an interesting lesson about karma because one, he says, this is like a dream world. So he was able to just fashion an entire palace. This, this sounds like a story out of the Arabian Nights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In Aladdin, if you read the original story, the jinn, the genie or the jinn, <laughs> the genie is able to basically manifest an entire palace out of nothing right, for, for Aladdin. And in this case, Babaji did it for him. And he said, in a previous life, you expressed a desire to live in a rich palace. And that basically what he was saying was that desire itself becomes the karma, right? That got recorded in a database. And he goes, by creating this, this dream palace, palace for you, which looked like a real palace, we're going to resolve the karma and show you how the whole physical world is a dream world. And so many of these stories actually have hidden karmic lessons or lessons about how karma works in the same way that if you're watching, you know, Mission Impossible, or you're watching Star Wars, you might have a dream with a character that night. It's like yeah. it made a karmic trace on you. You can let the small traces go by creating it in dreams. But the big traces are the quests or achievements or tasks that you have to do in the physical world. Um, so let me ask you this then, since you brought up The Matrix, uh, one of my favorite movies, and I think probably the catalyst for popularizing the idea of simulation theory in the masses, 
you know, because everybody saw the Matrix. Everyone heard about the Matrix. You know, it's like it really was a, a, a one of those movies that that changed society. Um, if we are Neo in the Matrix, is there a chance for us to break free of the Matrix? And if there is, how do we break free of the simulation? Well, that's another one of those very big questions, right? <laughs> uh, is is how do we wake up? Uh, right. You know, how how do we forget? And and you know, in the Greek traditions, when you incarnate, you cross Lethe, the river of forgetfulness, right? So that you forget what happened beforehand. In the Chinese traditions, there's Meng Po, which is the goddess of forgetfulness, who brews the tree tea of forgetfulness that you drink. And so, you know, there are different answers and different ways of going about it. Right. Some people think you can hack the simulation on a physical level, right? To try to to figure out like how do you overload the system? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So there's a there's a sci-fi movie called The Mandela Effect, which came out in 2019, where it turns out the world is a quantum computer, and by using another quantum computer, you can actually overload the system. And, and you can go back. But I think that's what a lot of what the, the yogis uh, and the sages have been telling us. It's like Yogananda is telling us to look away from the screen and look to the light, right? Because he keeps what telling us that? to focus on the light, that everything is made out of light. And when he describes the samadhi experience, which was given to him when he was still a young uh, swami by his uh, his guru, Sri Yukteswar, who taps him on the heart yeah. and suddenly... He feels this divine love, but then he looks out and he's able to see all around Calcutta, like that area of Calcutta. He could see like cows moving, people. But then he saw that everything consisted of light, right? Different vibrations of light. And so it gets back to that analogy. And so I think, you know, some people use DMT, right? They, they use uh, to get in different states. And I've had people tell me, oh, yeah, well, I've used DMT and I can see the lines of the simulation, right? <laughs> and therefore... I think the first person who told me that was Sean Stone. I don't know if you know him, Oliver <laughs> Stone's son. <Yeah>. Right? <laughs> he was one of the first people to say that to me, and many people have said that to me. And I, you know, I haven't gone down that, that route myself, but I do believe that we can calm our minds. So if you look back at the original definition of yoga, uh, you know, yoga, the term means like to yoke or union. But if you look at the Yoga Sutra, which was written by Patanjali, uh, and Yogananda quotes him in pretty much all the modern uh, you know, folks with uh, all the modern yogis would quote him as he defines yoga differently, right? Not as the asanas, the physical postures. Uh, those are just one of the eight limbs of yoga. But his actual definition of yoga um, is in Sanskrit, yoga chitta vritti naroda. And what that means is yoga is naroda means to stop or to cease. Chitta vrittis, vrittis are like little whirlpools, right? Uh, and chitta is like mind stuff. Some people translate it as thoughts. But in this book, I offer a slightly different uh, 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 translation using some of Yogananda and Swami Kriyananda's work in that area. But really, I translate it as yoga is the stopping of the whirlpools of thoughts and feelings in the river of consciousness. Right. And so it's about all these crazy thoughts that we have. That if we, yoga is when you still do. So if you ever had a good yoga session, a physical yoga session, at the end, you might do the, the corpse pose, Shavasana. Mm -hmm. Or I like the, the translation, the uh, peaceful pose better. Yeah, of course, uh, pose a little rough. <laughs> right. 
But it feels like something has been stilled, right? It feels like something has been calm, physically as well as mentally, right? The two are related. And so the key is like, if we're in a snow globe, you know, the snow globes, if you shake the snow globe, you can't see anything. That's us, like Yogananda calls it, you know, the storm of vrittis, right? The storm of these whirlpools of thoughts and desire. And past uh, vrittis harden into samskaras and they become part of our karma and they become part of what are called vasanas or our tendencies in the next life. And and so, you know, what the Buddha said was uh, that which is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And okay, it seems like a kind of an obvious statement, but but it's actually perhaps one of the most important things he said because it ties directly to the definition of yoga. If you stop doing this, that will stop too, right? So if you stop the vrittis, then you can perceive what's outside the simulation. So I think it's a matter of consciousness and paying less attention to the physical world. And that's what the eight limbs of yoga are all about, right? There's all these different concentration, withdrawal of the senses, mm. uh, meditation, all of these things lead you there. So, so with, you said, you said DMT, and that's a, a really interesting idea where like ayahuasca and psilocybin and some of the psychedelics that people are using, microdosing now uh, as well, it's almost like a cheat to break through and i heard i think it was maharishi uh who said uh about that because they gave him like a whole bunch of mushrooms and he ate them and he's like did nothing to him and he's like what of course it would do anything I, i'm here all the time why would i need this stuff to get to where i'm going i'm already here so he said by taking them it's like uh taking a taking a psychedelic it's like using a sledgehammer to break to make a to make a hole in the wall where meditation is like placing a window in the wall so it's always there and it's not very violent where the psychedelics are pretty rough from my understanding i've never taken any but it, it, it it's a rough trip and it could be rough it could be you know i've heard so many psychedelic stories so just really quickly what do you think by taking these psych- psychedelics or whatever plant medicine, whatever it is, mushrooms, ayahuasca, kind of hacks the the reality, hacks the simulation, hacks the code, if you will. Well, I think what it does is it loosens. Like remember, I defined ensoulment as when you put on that headset, mm-hmm. and, or if you think of the Matrix, you know, there's the plug. The, uh, the plug, the brain computer interface. It loosens that connection, right? And that's what it does. Now, it loosens it very quickly for a period of time, right? right? And that's where I think you're, that's a great, you know, that's a great analogy there about the, you know, the sledgehammer in the wall versus the window. <laughs> but but right. I think what they do is they loosen our identification with the body and our, we're, we're getting, constantly getting information, right, from our sense. Right. And, and but this is why the yogis emphasize this the world of the senses, right? Samsara. What is it? It's the world of the senses, right? Uh, you know, Yogananda himself said, you know, let it be from science then, let man learn that the warp and woof, that there is no material world, right? That the warp and woof in the material world is Maya or illusion. And so it's a matter of withdrawing from all this sensory information. And I think it puts us in that state where it loosens that connection a little bit. So we can kind of look around, but not fully, right? So that's why people have bad trips. Uh, You know, the the same thing that creates dreams can create hallucinations. 
but can also let you, this is why dreams are such a fascinating subject. You know, Yogananda said birth and death are like, you know, uh, doorways to the dream, right? <laughs> or awakening from one dream to the next dream, right? There's this element of the dream and the physical world, but there are also dreams that are weird dreams that are just like regurgitating stuff that we had during the day. And then there are more spiritual dreams. And so, you know, I think with psychedelics, we can loosen our grip on this physical reality, but we can also see a lot of weird stuff. And then some people claim to, you know, and I get people all the time emailing me saying, you know, they've seen this and they've seen that and they, they've seen the grid lines of the simulation and, 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 and all of this other stuff. And I find it fascinating. Haven't tried it myself yet, but. Uh, <laughs> me, me neither, sir. Maybe one day we both go and uh, a trip together, sir. <laughs> Sounds like so, a plan. Yeah. <laughs> um, Riz, I could talk to you for another five hours, brother. I am, this is, please, I, I have to have you back because this is a, an endless conversation of so many different things we could talk about uh, and, and further the audience's understanding of the simulation that we are possibly in and how it connects to spirituality, which is really the focus of what I try to do is connect quantum physics, connect these ideas to spirituality and the evolution of the soul. So I appreciate you. Uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions, ask all my guests. Uh, what is your definition of living a fulfilled life? I think a fulfilled life is when you are at the right place at the right time doing the work that you were meant to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's different for different people. And it's even different at different times in your life. You know, I, I, I tell the story in, in Wisdom of a Yogi of, you know, the tiger swami, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, the tiger swami used to fight tigers, right? It seemed like a bizarre thing to do with his bare hands, but eventually, you know, he was told to stop fighting tigers and to focus on his spiritual development, and he didn't, and he ended up being mauled by a tiger. And he was out fighting his outer tigers, and then it took him six months to recover, and he had no more desire to fight tigers, and he became a swami, he became the tiger swami. And so, you know, the lesson there is to spend time fighting your inner tigers, but I believe... Fighting tigers was part of his karma. And so it was part of what he was, he was drawn to it, like a moth to a flame, right? Uh, it's something that I wouldn't be drawn to. Or maybe you would. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not, not in the wrestle in the tiger world. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, it seems like a crazy thing to do. But, you know, we get drawn to these outer tigers in our lives. Uh, and I think that, that that may be the right thing to do at that point in time. And then later we realize, you know, there's something else we're meant to do. And for me, it meant shifting from the business world to my writing, which is what I'm focused on. Now, if you had a chance to go into a DeLorean and go back in time and speak to little Riz, what advice would you give him? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I would just encourage him to, uh, you know, go with his interests, right? Uh, which, which I, you know, I'd say for the most part I did, but oftentimes we get caught up in in the expectations of our families and our our peers in college, and even you know, I I've lived in Silicon Valley for about a decade, and you know, there's a lot of like this kind of mind think about what you should be doing and how you should be doing it. And so, you know, I'd encourage him always to just follow his own interests and explore those uh, without worrying about what other people think. How do you define God or source? Well, you know, God is ineffable, right? <laughs> Which is a term that many people use who've had near-death experiences. And so I don't think you can define them directly. So you have to use metaphors, right? Uh, and the Sufis use the metaphor of the, the lover and the beloved. 
uh, and the ecstasy, you know, so I, I just define God as everything that there is, is a part of God. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? I think the ultimate purpose of life is to enjoy the game. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good answer, sir. Now, where can people find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing and pick up a copy of your new book, Wisdom of a Yogi? Well, so my website is called zenentrepreneur.com. And they can get, you know, download three chapters of my various simulation books or business books or the yogi book. Uh, they can also get, you know, Wisdom of Yogi on Amazon, you know, most local bookstores, if they don't have it, they can order it as well. I encourage people to go to their local bookstores when possible. And even if it takes a day or two, they can get, you know, they can get the book there. Um, and on Twitter, or I guess it's no longer called Twitter, they can. Uh, what are they uh, calling it now? Me. What it's are they called? X. I know, I know it's X, but it's but it's not. So it's not called Twitter anymore. It's called well, X. It still sort of is, but because you tweet you still. Know, well, you're sort of, now they changed it to say post, repost rather than retweet, right? So, but I'm uh, I'm at Riz Stanford, like the <laughs> university, <laughs> and then uh, you know depending on when this airs, I'm I'm, I'm running a course on simulation theory called science, religion, and techno-philosophy. Uh, I, I taught this course at ASU and people kept asking me to take that weren't at Arizona State University. So I'm teaching it online at a, a website called morbidanatomy.com. So they can also go to my Twitter, uh, my ex. <laughs> I mean, uh, oh, the link. oh, Elon. Imagine yeah. the world with Elon, without Elon. What that what the simulation would be like at that point. Um, and my friend, do you have any party messages for the audience? Well, you know, uh, I, I was in the video game industry for about a decade, and I met one of the legends of the video game industry. Uh, he was a guy named Nolan Bushnell. Uh, he's just the founder of Atari. And he would always say, in order to make a game interesting, you have to make it easy to play, but difficult to master. And that's, you know, I think a good... Uh, rule of thumb for thinking about life. It's easy to play, but it's difficult to master, but it's okay. You know, you can keep working on your quests and your achievements and you'll get there eventually. My friend, I appreciate you and the work you're doing in the world. And thank you so much for this stimulating conversation, my friend. So thank you again. Thanks so much for having me on. I want to thank Riz so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge and experience with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including his amazing books, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 332. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, Trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.